Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Romaldi in for Leslie Marshall with you for just the next hour. And then uh, do not fear, Leslie will be here for the following two hours from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, joining you as I do most Tuesdays from 3 to 4 uh, p.m. Eastern with great friend uh, personally and a uh, great friend of the show. He's been uh, a great guest on the show for uh, actually over a decade now. Brad Bannon, who runs Bannon Communications Research, a polling message development and media firm which helps labor unions, progressive issue groups, and Democratic candidates win public affairs and political campaigns. Brad is also a senior advisor to and contributing editor for Tiller4U.com. That's T-I-L-L-E-R, the number 4-Y-O-U.com, the social media network for politics. He's also a contributor to TheHill.com, and he lectures in political science at Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts. You can follow him on Twitter at Brad Bannon. That's B-R-A-D-B-A-N-N-O-N, a great follow. If you'd like to follow myself, you can do so. My handle's at Mark J. Grimaldi. That's M-A-R-K-J-G-R. R-I-M-A-L-D-I. Brad, uh, good afternoon. Uh, it's nice to have you. Hey, Mark. How are you doing today? Uh, probably the same as uh, you are and most yeah. people who uh, believe in sane government and uh, aren't for uh, racism and xenophobia and uh, pretty much everything else bad that I think uh, is unfortunately going to be rained like hell upon hellfire upon us over the next four years if we don't fight. Um, Brad, I want to. Yeah, just... it won't be pretty. Uh, I think we got an indication of that um, on Sunday when they announced that uh, uh, that Stephen Bannon, by the way, no relation, thank, thank God, God. Uh, uh, is going to be uh, the uh, White House counselor to the president. Uh, he's, you know, he's, you know, pretty close. You know, uh, He's a wacko, basically, uh, you know, white supremacy, all that kind of stuff. Um, that's a pretty nasty signal that the president-elect sent us. Yeah, especially because he's supposedly, according to Trump, going to have an equal, him and Reince Priebus, uh, even though Reince Priebus is going to be, his title is chief of staff and Bannon's is chief White House strategist, they're saying that they're going to have equal roles, which that's a whole other can of worms about trying to have them both, you know, have equal power, especially considering that Priebus is more of, quote unquote, an established Republican and Bannon. I read some uh, quotes today from him, which we'll have to share later. But so, some of us who follow, you know, this election closely already knew that he's made uh, anti-Semitic comments. He's his ex-wife accused him of choking her and then threatening a witness when it went to court. Um, he's called uh, liberal women uh, dykes. Uh, he said that um, women who take birth control are crazy and unattractive. Just some horrible things. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, just for the record, uh, he's 
said, well-educated women are dykes. Yes, that's right, exactly. And he just, some horrifying things. He said his big, the biggest motivator for him in life is fear, and it's a great motivator. Just some really disturbing things. And, you know, I was at least heartened to see people not laying down and dying and trying to start petitions to have him removed from that position, and they're petitioning Paul Ryan, uh, people who hopefully they think will be somewhat of a, a quote-unquote check and balance with uh, Trump, which I have my reservations. Yeah. Well, the reason uh, Priebus got the job as chief of staff uh, instead of Bannon uh, is that Priebus is very close to the House Speaker Paul Ryan. Uh, Paul Ryan hates Stephen Bannon, uh, and they figured uh, the White House chief of staff is going to have have to have a lot of contact uh, with Congress. So uh, they did that. They set it up the way they did because uh, even Republicans in Congress don't like Stephen Bannon very much. So, uh, but we're stuck with him. Brad, I want to backtrack a little bit, um, and then we'll get back to that. I just want to kind of lay this on the line. You and I had a private email exchange after. Uh, the election, and I just kind of uh, opened up to you. But I'm going to do it on air because I have a feeling a lot of other people, you know, are feeling this way. But I'll give you my personal point of view. I know you've been doing this. Uh, if you, you don't have, if you don't mind me asking, Brad, how how old are you, and how long have you been in politics? Um, I'm uh, 64, um, and I've been in politics since uh, forever. Um, <sighs> I've been. Uh, I've been had my own firm now for 30-some years, um, but if you count the uh, many days I spent uh, as a two-year-old running around to political meetings with my grandfather, uh, <laughs> it's a lot more than that. Wow. All right. So, so this this is who I'm. I think some of us who have not been, uh, you know, I've, I've been quote unquote in politics since 2006. You know, so it's been not as long for me. Uh, you know, it's it's only been a, a decade um, or a little bit over a decade technically. Um, it'll actually be uh, 11 years soon. But anyway, um, you know, and I think some of us who are millennials or maybe just a little bit older are trying to make sense of this. I mean, mo- a lot of us did live through eight years of of George W. Bush and and Dick Cheney, but even that, honestly, and this sounds insane, but I feel like I could at least know more what of what to expect from from that White House, which is terrifying in and of itself. But I just what I want to say is I I'm 34 years old. Like I said, I've been doing this for a little over a decade. I've never experienced a loss like this, especially to a candidate like like this. And my question to you, and there's no perfect answer, you know, people may not have an answer, but how do myself and others feeling like I do get through this and move forward? Does history give us any guidance? Uh, Well, yeah. Actually, I had this uh, conversation with my students last Thursday, uh, many of whom were very unhappy that uh, Trump uh, had been uh, elected. I, I have a class of about 30 students, and I say probably only one of them uh, voted for Trump. Uh, So uh, they're clearly very unhappy. And, you know, what I said to them is, uh, you know, and this is a function my age, um, hey, I survived Richard Nixon uh, and Ronald Reagan, uh, so I can survive Donald Trump. Um, the other thing is, and this is really a process argument, uh, the, our founders, when they wrote the Constitution, the last thing they wanted was someone to come in, become president, 
and baby, uh, be able to run roughshod uh, over the country. Uh, and, you know, they may have been thinking of Donald Trump when, when they were uh, writing the Constitution. But the reality is, and I'm, I fear, uh, I think Mr. Trump's going to find this out very soon, is it's, it's, there's not a whole lot a president can do uh, without getting Congress to sign on. Uh, now, the Republicans control both houses of Congress, uh, but uh, there are several Republican senators uh, who publicly stated their opposition uh, to Donald Trump uh, and said they were voting you know, for somebody else or writing in a candidate. And the other thing is uh, the Senate, the American government is built to create inertia. And it's really hard for the president to break through that. Now, the other problem he's going to have uh, is that there are now, I think, 48 Democrats uh, going to be in the new Senate. Uh, and the reality is, uh, to do anything of moment, uh, great significance in the Senate, uh, you need 60, uh, you need, uh, 60 votes. Uh, and the Republicans who only have 52 votes. Uh, so using filibuster rule, uh, it will be pretty easy for Democrats to, uh, block, uh, 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 the, any Trump initiatives that they find distasteful. Now, the problem is that the Constitution does have a lot of checks and balances on the president to get, stop him from becoming a dictator. The troubling part is that's much more true uh, in terms of domestic policy and, and the economy than it is foreign policy. Uh, the president... Congress traditionally has given the president a lot more leeway to do what he wants uh, on national security matters, whereas they give him, traditionally give him very, le very little leeway uh, in uh, domestic matters. So what really concerns me, and this is especially true if the rumors are true and Rudy Giuliani is going to be um, our next Secretary of State, uh, the president has pretty free reign in foreign policy, and with a president-elect like Trump, I, that could be very dangerous. Brad, uh, I think you bring really bring up some strong points. Um, you know, I was on Twitter yesterday when they were speculating it was going to be John Bolton, and he is a, a neocon very close to Dick Cheney, doesn't believe in climate change, which, you know, the Secretary of State is going to be uh, potentially negotiate, you know, helping negotiate some of these things like the Paris Agreement, which they're talking about backing out of now. And I forget who it was on Twitter, but uh, I think it was an author, Josh Harper, from Talking Points Memo, said... Rudy Giuliani is now being considered the favorite instead of John Bolton. That's actually somewhat good news considering that he actually believes in climate change. Now, obviously, if Trump wants him to, to get out of that treaty, he will. But he said, this is how far we've fallen. And it was just like, if I didn't laugh, I was going to cry. Um, but when we get back from the break, I want to talk to you about the nuclear option in the Senate, um, which some people are familiar with, some people are not. But um, there's a way to get around the filibuster, which is my biggest concern, and whether or not Mitch McConnell will do that. And 
and if so, for what issues he's likely to do that for. So we're going to talk about that, uh, as well as some other issues. Where does the Democratic Party go from here? How do we hold Trump's feet to the fire? Who's the right choice for the next uh, leader of the DNC? And uh, we're also going to try to find out what Democrats would have to do to retake the Senate in 2018. Uh, if we have time, there's also some great quotes from President Obama in his state of, or excuse me, state of the union, his press conference yesterday. Uh, I would highly recommend any of you who are feeling anxious, uh, listen to that press conference. To be honest with you, it gave me resolve about moving forward. Um, it had a calming effect on me, not in a way of like, oh, everything's going to be fine, you know, I, you know, nothing bad is going to happen. But uh, it just, in a way, only I think President Obama can do. He he gave me a calm sense of purpose as to where to go from here, and I would highly recommend. It was about an hour and four minutes, uh, a lot of good questions. Um, you can find that on the White House's YouTube feed, so we'll try to get some clips from that as well. This is Mark Grimaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall. If you have any thoughts, you're welcome to join us at 8886-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Mark Grimaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall, and we'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Romaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall just for the next hour. And then Leslie will be back from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Brad, before we went to break, I was uh, starting to ask you about the nuclear option, which for those who don't know, essentially uh, allows the Senate to get around the filibuster. It hasn't been used very often. In 2013, Harry Reid um kind of used it for nominations for judges, not a Supreme Court justice, after uh, Republicans had stalled the process for years, and there still actually are a bunch of judicial vacancies lower than the Supreme Court, but it's rarely used otherwise. There's also been talk of, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell would have to lead uh, Republicans in, in voting to do this, I believe, right? And not, not all of them may want to, to kill the um, the filibuster, correct? Yeah, that's correct. The, uh, you know, certainly... Um the uh, White House would be very happy uh, if the uh, uh, Senate Republicans dropped the filibuster bill, uh, killed the nuke the filibuster, uh, because it would be a lot easier for him to get th- things through Congress. Uh, but the problem is this: the filibuster is been in existence ever since the Senate's been in existence. So we're talking 1789 here or so. And it's, you know, tradition's big in the Senate, a lot more than in the House. And I think even some Republican senators might be reluctant uh, to use it uh, very often. Now, I have no doubt that uh, at some point um, they probably will use it. Um, I suspect a good example is... uh, uh, when they get around to uh, talking about uh, the budget, uh, the filibuster rule uh, does can be easily waived 
when you're talking about uh, financial and budgetary issues. Uh, so I suspect uh, that, that would be an opportunity to use it. But again, you know, I think one of the things that's going on here is there are seven, there are several uh, Senate Republicans who've made it quite clear in the last few months uh, they're not terribly supportive of Donald Trump. Uh, and they may be reluctant uh, to do this. And the reality is, let's say the uh, majority leader McConnell decides, okay, we're going to do this, debate this bill without a filibuster. Now, he needs 51 votes uh, to do that. Now, there are 52 Republicans. But uh, my guess is it might very easily be two or three Republicans. Um, I can think of uh, Susan Collins in Maine at, off the top of my head Lindsey Graham, uh, maybe. that aren't going to like the idea of breaking a longstanding Senate tradition. So uh, I think uh, I think I'd be surprised if they used it a lot or regularly, I suspect it probably will happen on occasions, especially with budget and tax issues. Yeah, and the other thing is, Brett, like you mentioned, Susan Collins, you have Lindsey Graham, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, Senator Jeff Flake, and um, Senator John McCain, who all opposed Trump at uh, different times during the, the election, So, and some of them have been there a long time. So I, I think that's honestly one of the biggest hopes for the Democrats. And then also this past week, um, McConnell hinted that um, he may not support that, saying that, warning uh, Republicans they need to be wary of, quote, overreaching now that they have kept control uh, of Congress. Um, well, you know, that's, he's, he's, he's probably right about that. One thing, if you look at American political history, Anytime anybody's tried to short-circuit the process, it usually ends in disaster. Uh, because, you know, the whole checks and balance thing is an inherent part of our system. And when anybody tries to tinker with that, it usually works out badly. I mean, the classic example is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, after he got reelected by a wide margin in 1936, he was tired of the Supreme Court uh, killing all his New Deal initiatives, uh, so he announced, uh, he uh, proposed uh, that for every member of Congress, um, I think it was over 60, he would get to appoint another member of the Supreme Court. And that would have given, if he had gotten that, he would have got uh, had control of the Supreme Court, but uh, senators, even Democratic senators, thought that was so uh, crazy and such a breach of the uh, uh, checks and balances system, they opposed Roosevelt, and McConnell might run into the same thing if he tries, and he's aware of that, and he's also aware that, you know, if he kills the filibuster rule, uh, Democrats could do the very same thing the next time they get control. Great points, Brad. We'll be right back after this hard break. Uh, this is Mark Romaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Romaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall, just with you for the next half hour. And then Leslie will uh, rejoin us on the airwaves from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern, uh, talking uh, the latest news here with Brad. Uh, before we went to the break, Brad, I wanted to talk to you about, I, I know... Um, 
you know, some Democrats have hope of retaking the Senate in 2018, but the map is uh, very tough. It seems it's like it's been in off years um, for Democrats just because the districts that are up for election uh, are in redder districts. Um, what would the Democrats have to do? I mean, obviously they have 48 seats now. They would need to gain three, but they're up for more Democrats are up for reelection in tough districts. Yeah, twice but, as many, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a, the math is very daunting uh, in terms of the Democrats taking back the Senate in 2018 uh, because there are twice as many. You know, this is the reverse of the situation we had this year, uh, where there was twice as many Republicans up uh, as there were Democrats. Now it goes into reverse in 2018, where there are twice as many Republican senators up as, uh, excuse me, twice as many Democratic senators up uh, as Republicans, and it's really going to be hard. Uh, it's really going to be very difficult. First of all, there are, you know, a limited number of Republicans actually running for re-election in 2018. Uh, and, you know, we had this two-to-one advantage this time, and even with that, we couldn't take back control of the Senate. So the math is pretty daunting. I mean, the only thing that could change it uh, is basically uh it's up to donald trump um if he does a bad job if he screws things up uh that would make it uh possible for the democrats to take back control uh so uh you know a lot of it depends on what the economy looks like in two years uh what kind of you know how people feel about trump after two years of his presidency uh but the math is daunting how do we hold Trump's feet to the fire, Brad? You know, obviously we have, like you said, the, the Senate may be our only uh, recourse here at this point because of the filibuster. Much of uh, how the Republicans did it to President Obama, they also had the House, obviously, but they used a record amount of filibusters to block uh, and obstruct anything President Obama did. Um, is is that really the only way, besides obviously trying to build some new grassroots movement like we see with some of these protesters, especially young people, like galvanizing? them well uh yeah yes to both uh in politics you've got to play an inside game uh and an outside game uh the inside game is going to be essentially in the hands of uh, uh chuck schumer the democratic senator from new york who's going to be the minority leader in the senate uh, that's the inside game. The outside game is uh, what you're talking about, is the protesters in the streets, uh, Democrats uh, appearing on cable television shows and giving their critique of Donald Trump's presidency. Uh, one of the advantages I, I think Democrats do have in holding Trump's uh, feet to the fire uh, is you got Bernie Sanders, you've got uh, Elizabeth Warren, and already the two of them have been beating up on Trump pretty aggressively. And, you know, they're both uh, very visible, and I think we're going to see a lot of them. Chuck Schumer may be the majority, uh, minority leader, but I think in terms of, you know, figures you're going to see a lot on TV uh, are Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And between the two of them, I I think they will make uh, President Trump's life miserable, and that's your job. Is Keith Ellison the right choice to lead the DNC, and if not, who do you think is? Well, I like, I personally like Ellison for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is he's a grassroots guy. Uh, you know, he's uh, very suspicious of uh, 
you know, TV advertising. And I think there's good reason to be suspicious of it. You know, Hillary Clinton outspent uh, Donald Trump incredibly on TV ads, uh, and look what good it did her. Uh, and I think Ellison's focus, if he is the chair of the DNC, uh, would be to get the party back at the grassroots level. Uh, I think Ellison also feels very strongly uh, that, and I think he's right about this too, that uh, we're going to have to do something uh, to do a better job uh, talking about bread and butter issues uh, that would appeal to voters in in the Rust Belt, uh, which is very important. I mean, if you took the four Rust Belt states and if you subtracted their electoral votes from Donald Trump and you added them to Hillary Clinton, all of a sudden you have a Clinton presidency. Uh, And the reality is, and I think Ellison understands this, uh, that uh, you just can't you just can't function, Democrats can't function as a party unless they focus on bread and butter issues. A good example, I've spent the last few days diving uh, through the exit polls, and one thing that's pretty clear is uh, voters in the industrial Midwest uh, were very unhappy with what they heard about the economy. Uh, they heard uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton talking about how much better the economy was, uh, and they were still trying to figure out why they were having so much trouble paying their mortgage every month and feeding their kids. Uh, and the message that Democrats, you know, the president and Hillary Clinton were sending is the economy's getting better, uh, you know, hey, things are great. Um, and, you know, people in the Midwest just didn't believe that. Uh, and they had good reason not to believe it, because they it isn't for people then. I thought the most interesting uh, capstone to Election Day was uh, the day after Election Day, uh, GM announced it was laying off uh, 2,000 auto workers in Ohio and Michigan. Welcome to the industrial Midwest. And we need to talk about bread and butter issues, minimum wage. My guess is Paul Ryan really wants to take a swing at privatizing uh, Medicare. Uh, and those are the kind of things uh, Ellison believes we should be discussing, and I think he's right about that. Brad, one of the frustrating parts is we finally saw in the last jobs report that wages are rising and we do see the unemployment rate going down, uh, gas prices, a lot of things that President Obama had some control over that he wasn't obstructed from actually doing, like wanting to raise the minimum wage, which is the frustrating part to me is I think Republicans successfully obstructed him to make him look bad and then use that in this election, whereas if his policies were able to be implemented, I think we would have been able to see more success in those areas. Yeah, I, I do too. And, you know, there's a lesson for Donald Trump. Uh, Yeah, I think, you know, people were very unhappy with gridlock in Washington, D.C. And a lot of the gridlock was just based on the fact that Republicans in Congress uh, would not do anything to cooperate from Barack Obama. And that was true uh, from Inauguration Day in 2009. The problem is when there's gridlock, It's the president, not Congress, that takes the hit because, you know, Americans feel, well, he's the president, he's in charge, he either makes things go or not go. And even though Republicans obstructed the process, uh, Barack Obama took the hit, uh, and also the candidate he tried to help elect took the hit along with him. 
Brad, and Trump has to worry about the same thing. Exactly, exactly. And Trump, speaking of Trump, he says he wants to repeal and replace Obamacare. He says he wants to potentially keep the provisions where people cannot be denied based on pre-existing conditions and parents can keep their children on their plans until the age of 26. However, he also wants to get rid of the individual mandate. So how do you do all of that without rates going up? Well, the short answer is the only thing that keeps makes Obamacare work is the individual mandate. Uh, and if you don't get the money from the individual mandate, you can't fund the program. So it will die. And Trump knows that. Uh, he doesn't have to, uh, you know, all he has to do is kill the individual mandate, uh, and that will uh, create a massive funding problem for Obamacare, so it will die. And Trump knows that, uh, and I'm afraid that's what's going to happen, because the Republicans in Congress can't wait to repeal Obamacare. Now, the problem they're going to have is all of a sudden you're going to have 22 million people who don't have health insurance. What do you do for them? If you repeal Obamacare, uh, and uh, there, there, you know, what do you do about you know trying to keep the lid on the uh, you know the medical industry in terms of uh, trying to uh, slow down uh, the gross inflation in medical cost? And it's great; it'll probably be pretty easy for them to kill Medicare, and I suspect they will. But they, if they do that, they will pay a political price if they don't have anything in place uh, to re- uh, take its place. You know, one of my favorite things is during, you know, since 2000, since Obamacare became law, uh, House Republicans have voted 60 times to repeal it. Uh, the only thing that kept them from repealing it was the fact they knew President Obama was going to veto their repeal. Uh, and in that time where they uh, basically uh, voted to kill Medicare 60 times, not once, not once did they vote on an alternative to replace it. And that's where they'll run into trouble. Trump, yeah, also said there's going to be no transition period between repealing and replacing it, which is insane. I want to play a clip of President Obama from yesterday uh, echoing some of your statements there here, Brad. You know, one of the things I advised him to do was to make sure that before he commits to certain courses of action, he's really dug in and thought through um, how various issues play themselves out. I, I'll, I'll use uh, a obvious example uh, where we have a difference, but it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, in the coming year, and that's the Affordable Care Act. Obviously, this has been uh, the holy grail for Republicans over the last six, seven years, was we've got to kill Obamacare. That has been taken as an article of faith, that this is terrible, it doesn't work, and we have to undo it. But now that Republicans are in charge, they've got to take a look and say, let's see, we've got 20 million people who have health insurance who didn't have it before. Health care costs generally have gone up at a significantly slower rate since Obamacare was passed than they did before, which has saved the federal treasury hundreds of billions of dollars. People who have health insurance are benefiting in all sorts of ways that they may not be aware of, everything from no longer having lifetime limits on the claims that they can make to seniors getting prescription drug discounts uh, under Medicare uh, to free mammograms 
Now, it's one thing to characterize these, this thing as not working when it's just an abstraction. Now, suddenly, you're in charge and you're going to repeal it. Okay, well, what happens to those 20 million people who have health insurance? Are you going to just kick them off and suddenly they don't have health insurance? And in, in what ways are their lives better because of that? Are you going to repeal the provision that ensures that if you do have health insurance on your job and you lose your job or you change jobs or you start a small business that you're not discriminating against because you got a pre-existing condition, that's really popular. How are you going to replace it? Are you going to change the policy that kids can stay on their parents' health insurance plan until they're 26? How are you going to approach all these issues? Now, my view is that if they can come up with something better, that actually works, and a year or two after they've replaced the Affordable Care Act with their own plan, that 25 million people have health insurance, and it's cheaper and better and running smoothly, I'll be the first ones to say, that's great. Congratulations. If, on the other hand, whatever they're proposing results in millions of people losing coverage and results in people who already have health insurance losing protections that were contained in the legislation, then we're going to have a problem. Uh, and I think that's not going to be unique to me. I think the American people will respond that way. So I think on a lot of issues, what you're going to see is now comes the hard part. Now is governance. We are going to be able to present to the incoming administration a country that is stronger, a federal government that is working better and more efficiently, a national security apparatus that is both more effective and truer to our values, energy policies that are resulting in not just less pollution, but also more jobs. And I think the, the president-elect, rightly, would expect that he's judged on whether we improve from that baseline and on those metrics or things get worse. And if things get worse, then the American people will figure that out pretty quick. And if things get better, then more power to them. And, and I'll be the first to congratulate him. What do you think about the president's comments there, Brad? Well, he's absolutely right. Uh, if the Republicans repeal Medicare, and I suspect they will, uh, as far as I know, the Rep congressional Republicans have two priorities right off the bat when they come back uh, to Washington next January. Is One is to repeal Obamacare, and the second one, and this is for the Senate, uh, is to get a new conservative Supreme Court justice. Uh, so the president's absolutely right. You know, they could do that, and they probably will do it. Uh, but they, if they don't have an alternative, uh, it's going to be a disaster. And, you know, we've been talk, debating Obamacare now for six years, and Republicans, after all that, they still haven't come up with an alternative uh, because they can't think of one that, first of all, is going to make all Republicans happy and uh, uh, and uh, voters happy, and uh, good luck to them trying it. But, you know, there's some dangers. You know, I think Obamacare is probably uh, dying on the vine right now. Um, I think Americans are going to be in a rude shock on January 20th uh, on Inauguration Day because I think uh, Donald Trump is going to rescind a lot of the executive orders and executive agreements uh, that uh, Barack Obama established. Uh, one is, and Trump's been very clear about this all through the campaign, is uh, he's going to pull the United States out of the Paris uh, Climate Change Accords. Uh, and if that happens, we'll be the only country in the world not participating. 
the other thing that worries about me uh, that worries is the agreement we have with Iran to limit their development of nuclear weapons. Uh, that is an executive agreement, so that means uh, Donald Trump can, you know, kill it uh, just by ex- issuing an executive order. And there's also, and the other one that's going to happen, I think, is uh, President Obama issued executive order uh, to prevent uh, the INS or whatever the current name is uh, from deporting uh, children who had come to this uh, country uh, at, uh, when they were younger than 12 as their, uh, as their, uh, with their parents. Now, President Obama issued an executive order so they wouldn't deport these kids and their parents. Uh, but Donald Trump has said he's going to reverse that executive order, so that's going to allow for, uh, you know, uh, basically getting rid of, uh, you know, lots of uh, people, including a lot of kids uh, and their families. Uh, a lot of bad things are going to happen on January 12th, 20th. Don't let me kid you about that. Brad, I think you're spot on. I, I think that's one of the reasons we, like you said, we need the grassroots level to, to organize and be ready to show what this future president is going to do to the country and, and hold him accountable, as we've been talking about. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this quick break. Mark Romaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall, who will be joining us again and hosting from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. And we'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. Mark Romaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall for just one final segment. And then uh, Leslie will be back from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Again, you can check out Brad on Twitter at Brad Bannon. That's B-R-A-D-B-A-N-N-O-N. Brad, I just have to say this out loud, I think, and just, just let it be out there. The fact that Trump, not Obama, gets to nominate the next Supreme Court justice is the biggest injustice I've ever witnessed in politics. Every time I think about it, I want to cry and vomit fire simultaneously. Well, you're right to think that, Mark, because, you know, in the mix, that's probably the most long-term influence a president can have. Uh, They're going to appoint a young conservative, I don't know who, but, you know, somebody in their 40s or early 50s who will be on the court for 20 years. So after Donald Trump uh, is gone out of the White House, there'll still be this guy, whoever it is, or woman, uh, very conservative, very young, who's going to be on the court for 20 or 30 years. And now the chances are that not only will he get to fill the vacancy that exists, uh, the uh, Scalia they can see, but you know, there's a good chance in four years he'll get to pick another one, uh, and that will change the courts and put it in a more conservative uh, direction that could last for decades. All right, Brad, we got one minute. Give us something hopeful here. Well, the thing that's hopeful uh, is that the Constitution makes it difficult for the president to do everything he wants to do. And 
you know, Trump is not going to run into the same kind of gridlock that uh, President Obama did, but he will run into problems trying to get some of his more drastic policies uh, through the Senate, especially. Uh, so there is some limitations on Trump's behavior, uh, and if we uh, are very public and vocal in op- our opposition, we can help those checks and balances against Trump work. Brad, I will take it. I will take it. We, I, I feel a little more hopeful than I did before we started the hour, and I think your historical perspective uh, is sorely needed right now, especially for some of us who are still licking our wounds and uh, learning how to, to pick ourselves back up and fight again. So I just want to thank you for that. I appreciate it. It means a lot. Uh, I, I always love having you on here, and uh, I really uh, respect your opinion. So well, I love being us. on with you, Mark. Thanks, brother. All right, you have a great rest of your day. You can follow Brad Bannon on Twitter, at Brad Bannon. That's B-R-A-D-B-A-N-N-O-N. The website's BannonCR.com. This has been Mark Romaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall, who will be right back joining us after this segment.